Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. My name is Nate um, Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here. I oversee family and community here at Portico, um, and I am really happy to be here this morning. Um, And I'm also really happy that you guys are here. We um, are in the middle of a sermon series going through Philippians, and Philippians, a lot of Philippians is about how to live life as a Christian. And so there's a lot of things that um, Paul puts into this letter um, as commands, like how Christians should live, do this, do this, do this. Um, but today, he stops, and he gives this glorious presentation of the gospel. And so today, you guys get to hear not what to do, but who you are. And there's nothing more important than this. And so it is just a magnificent um, passage. But we also need, uh, we need the Spirit to make our hearts alive to this. And so um, we need him to, as we read this, as we hear this, um, as we receive this wonderful message, um, we need the Spirit to open our hearts to it and give us the ability to trust it. And this is going to be really hard for some of you because we are in a area that treasures and puts a lot of confidence in personal accomplishment, personal mastery, individuality, um, your intelligence, your job. All of these things are how we start to define ourselves. Um, but today we're going to we're going to hear from Paul as he basically approaches this like a job interview. And so I don't know um, when the last time you guys had a job interview was, but does anybody like going to job interviews? I don't. Right? They're miserable. They're terrible. Um, and they're terrible for this reason. A lot of times you're applying for a job that you're not quite qualified to get. <laughs> but you're ambitious, so you're like, why not? What's the worst thing that could happen? And so when you go to a job interview, what, what does a smart person do when they're going to a job interview? Well, they do a little research, right? They look at the company, they tr- see what the specific job that they might be doing is, and then they present themselves, usually through a resume and then in the interview, to match up very precisely to what they think that job will be. And they have a lot of, they put all of their confidence in that interview in their ability to present themselves as someone who has earned the right to do that job and someone who can do that job. And so we're going to hear Paul's resume today, and we're going to get to know what Paul thinks of his resume. And so um, this is this is going to be really, really wonderful for all of us to hear, and I, um, I really do hope that um, you guys grasp it and never let go of this message. So you can open your Bibles if you have them with me or through um, your phones. We're going to be in Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. And please follow along with me as we read God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. 
in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a story. What an example you've given to us in, in this passage. God, you have, you have just pierced our hearts. You have shown us, all of us, what we try and do to earn your love how we try and barter with you, how we try and um, show, show you our accomplishments as if we could buy your love with them. And so, God, I pray that all of us, that we would lay all of that down, that as Paul, we would count them as rubbish, that all of our good works, all of our guilt, all of our accomplishments, all of, our, um, all of the things that we've earned, God, that we would abandon them and that we would come to Jesus with nothing. And that when we do that, that we will experience his righteousness, the righteousness that comes from you as you attribute that to us, as you adopt us into your family. Lord, help us believe that. God, don't let us stop there, but help us to see the full plan that you have for us that you are going to make us like Christ, that you are going to fully glorify us, that you are going to raise us from the dead as your family, as your people, and we are going to be with you forever. God, that's, that's what we hear in these, in these verses today. So God, I ask that you would be here with us, that your spirit would be um, moving powerfully in all of our lives, all of our hearts, all of our minds, um, that we will leave here changed, and comforted by Jesus Christ. Pray all of this in his name. Amen. This is quite a passage. Um, it really, really hit me um, as I was spending the last week in it. Um, and it's because it's so easy for us to forget this. And there are so many different ways that we twist this message and we try to earn God's love. Um, it happens um, for people who don't know Christ it's the default, right? Even if you don't acknowledge God, 
even if you're an atheist, there's still something that's driving you in this world, still something that you try and do to give you significance, something that you try and do to make meaning out of the world. And for the Christian, for those of us who know Christ, it's something that we always are kind of fighting. We get drift. We start drifting off of Christ and back to what we can do. And it's just constant. And so we need this, this word to come to us and to help us, no matter who you are this morning. Um, in the first three verses of this passage, Paul really kind of introduces it. And he is writing to the Philippian church, who they're under intense persecution. And his word to them is rejoice. So he's going to go into why they should rejoice in the rest of the passage. But his word to them is one of encouragement, that even when things are hard, especially when they're hard, rejoice in the Lord. And he's writing these things over and over again to encourage them in their persecution, um, as they're losing family members, as people are being imprisoned, as they're watching people who they thought were brothers and sisters in the faith leave and start to follow these other teachers and Paul identifies these other teachers as the Judaizers. So um, if, you re- if you were with us back when we were studying Acts, we learned about this group. This is a group that um, they thought that in order for the Gentiles to become Christians, they had to first become Jewish. And so they were saying, this is great that you are now trusting in Jesus, but it's not quite enough. You also have to be circumcised and follow all of the rituals and rites of passage of the Israelites. And so at first, you can understand how a, um, how, how a Jewish person trying to kind of wrestle with the tension of um, the Old Covenant with the revelation of Jesus might come to that conclusion. But the problem here is that that was a while ago, and the church said with a unified voice, no. All you need is Christ. All you need is Christ. And if you add anything to him, you don't have him. And so these are people who are intentionally trying to divide the body of Christ. They are intentionally doing harm to these very vulnerable people who for the first time have realized that God's promise is for them, not just the Israelites. And so Paul comes out with guns blazing. He pulls no punches. I mean, these are insults that he's just hurtling at these people. He says, look out for the dogs. So this isn't your golden retriever pet. This isn't even um, a mangy adopted stray that is now living the domestic life. This is a word that was for the rabid wild dogs that would come into the city of Jerusalem and then they would be driven out because they were a threat. And this word dogs was applied by the Judaizers to the Gentiles. So if one of these Judaizers was um, talking with his buddies and he was like, oh yeah, I was with a bunch of the dogs. He's talking about Gentiles. And so Paul says, look out for them. They're the dogs. They are the mangy beasts that are rabid and dangerous. Look out for them. Look out for the evildoers. So these Judaizers thought that they could have righteousness through their obedience to the law. 
And so their good works were really important to them. And Paul says, they're doing evil. Look out for them. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. This is a reference to the circumcision and the right um, of passage that the Judaizers were still trying to apply to God's people after the debate had already been settled. There was a new covenant that came with a new sign. Circumcision was no longer part of the new covenant. It was no longer the way of identifying God's people. That's what baptism is. That's what communion is. And so they were making these people who had no context for circumcision be circumcised before they could claim Christ. Paul says that's a completely empty sign. All you're doing is you're mutilating the creation of God. That's what you're doing, Judaizers. And he wants the Philippians to know this in no uncertain terms, to avoid that teaching, because it will lead them to death. It will lead them out of fellowship with Christ. That's the only, where, the only place that leads. And then he gives them this. He gives them this wonderful identity statement. For we are the circumcision. That's another way of saying we are the people of God. We are God's people who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. Their confidence is in Christ, not in the flesh, not in what they do. So there's an us-versus-them paradigm that is set up. And then Paul goes in and says, even if you are able to have confidence in the flesh, which you can't, if anybody had reason for it, I have more. So he looks at the Judaizers in the face and says, I'm a better Jew. I'm better than you, and I've abandoned this. And he goes on and he lists his resume to show all people, out of all people, he had the most reason to boast. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the right day. So he's following the letter of the law down to the smallest detail. He was of the people of Israel, so he was God's chosen people. Not only that, but of the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin was a tribe that was known for its strength, known for its endurance, known for being faithful when all the other tribes were falling away. He was of that tribe. First king of Israel, Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin. Somebody else was named Saul. Paul. He was named for the first king of Israel. He studied under the most prestigious rabbi, of his day. And he lets them know it. He says Hebrew of Hebrews. Now to us, that doesn't really mean much. We kind of get the sense that it's communicating, but that is all throughout. That's language of the Old Testament. That is a Hebrew idiom that's saying, I am the ultimate one of this group. So Paul's saying, bring it. I am better than you. I have more than you. As to the law of Pharisee, he knew all of it. You could not stump him with a quiz. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So outwardly, he was doing everything right. He was a very moral person. He was living an upright life. Outwardly, you could not find fault with Paul. But now we see 
the momentum began to shift a little bit. And Paul says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So all of this, all of Paul's confidence in the flesh, in his own ability, it led him down a path. And it had to. There's only one way, one place where confidence in the flesh leads, and it's to self-righteousness that produces a hatred for grace. And so Paul saw all these raggedy people starting to come in and claim to be the people of God. And it drove him crazy. So much so that he started storming into houses and pulling people out of their homes to imprison them. He was separating families. So much so that he oversaw the stoning of the first Christian martyr. He said, don't throw the rocks there, throw them here. He had a murderous rage because he had more respect and priority for the law than he did for people. The law drove Paul to think that he could actually earn God's love and that this was how he was going to do it. This is crazy, isn't it? We look at this and we're like, how does this make sense? How could Paul do this? How could he think that listing as being a persecutor of the church as a qualification? Well, that's because that's how blind he was to his need for anything else. He was totally self-sufficient. He had earned God's favor. He got the job. He was being paid a salary by God. Receiving a free gift for Paul was unthinkable. So that was Paul. Now let's now let's look at us. What what are some signs that we're living according to the flesh? That our confidence is in the flesh and not in Christ. Well, it's an obsession with your self-image. So if you are obsessed with how you look and how you appear to other people, and you're worried about what other people are going to think of you, so much so that you kind of stifle the leading of the Spirit, stifle clear instruction of Scripture, then you're living in your flesh. You're not living in the Spirit. What about comparing yourself to somebody else? If you're constantly kind of comparing yourself, seeing how you measure up, this could happen. This, I mean, this happens all the time in churches. It's like, oh, I'm, I think I'm a little bit better of a Christian because they're still struggling with that, and I conquered that a while ago. So I'll help them, you know, because that's what a good Christian does. Your confidence is in the flesh. It's in what you can do, what you have done. And then finally, it's a lack of prayer. If you, in the ordinary routine things of your life, find it kind of pointless to pray, like, yeah, I got this. I don't need God to help me in these areas. Your confidence is in your flesh. What about when things start to go really bad in your life? When you get yourself into trouble or trouble happens to you, how do you try and get out of that? 
Do you try and use your charisma, use your um, self-confidence, use your hard work ethic, your intelligence to work yourself out of that? Or do, do you sit there and wait for God to show up because you know that you need him to do that? So in verse 7, we see a major shift. Because something happened to Paul. As he was on the road to go persecute the church more, something happens to him. And if you remember this, this is from Acts again. Jesus showed up. Well, that was impossible because Jesus was dead. And dead people stay dead. So you can imagine what is going through Paul's mind when Jesus shows up, confronts him, and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He says, you're not persecuting people. You're persecuting me, the one who conquered death, the one who is alive and working in this world. You're persecuting me. And Paul is speechless And he realized something. He realized that all that he did, all of those qualifications, his heritage, his effort, his work, there was one problem with them. They were doing great at getting him through life, but one thing it couldn't do was be resurrected from the dead. Because dead people stay dead. So I, I was thinking about this. Um, I hope this makes sense to some of you. Nintendo 64 was one of the last times I played video games, and um, it was glorious, so I just went out on a high note. Um, but in Mario, there's a bunch of different stage bosses, and they're kind of they're middling bosses. They're not that hard to beat. And so it was great. I would go through and like just, just kill the bosses, move on to the next level, and so on and so forth, until you get to the end of the game, and who do you face? Bowser, yeah. Yeah, you guys know. Well, my sister could beat Bowser. I could not beat Bowser. And so I still haven't beat um, Mario 64. It's very sad. But this, this was kind of what Paul was realizing. Paul realized there's a final boss that my righteousness can't beat because dead people stay dead. And so he realized something, and we see this this shift happen in verse 7, that made him completely forsake and abandon his work, his righteousness, and he came to Christ naked. Nothing. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So there's a couple of things that you should notice about this. The first is really interesting. Paul doesn't just say, oh, I... I realized that what I was doing wasn't working, and so I tried something else. Right? So he, he realized that, like, let's say you're putting money into a bank account. And so you're depositing money into a bank account for months. 
And then something happens, and your bank calls you, and is like, you don't have any money. You're like, what are you talking about? I don't have money. I've been crediting my account for a long time. Paul realized that that it wasn't neutral. It's not like those that money was getting lost in between. It was actually being counted against him. It was a debit. So what he thought he was doing to earn God's love was pushing him from God's love. And so he did not give these things away or lose them or count them as loss begrudgingly. He didn't say, oh, well, I, I might miss doing those things, so I'm going to start doing this thing and maybe I'll go back to it. No, this he realized was leading him to death and he fled it. But even more strongly than that, not only did he flee from it, but he viewed it as rubbish. Now, this word here um, is not rubbish. It's the Greek word skubalon, and I have to say it in Greek because if I said the S word that it's translated best at, I couldn't be here anymore. <laughs> but that's what it is. This is filth. This is excrement. And Paul is completely repulsed by his efforts to earn God's love. All the things that he used to take pride in, when he came face-to-face with Jesus, man, it sickened him. It made him nauseous. I had a um, wonderful little story happen to me that kind of reminded me of this when I was reading about this word. I had a friend in college who, in Phoenix who thought it would be a good idea to um, leave her fridge out over the summer to defrost, right? So that's fair. Um, so when we came back, we found her fridge, and there was just, there's a smell coming from it. And it was closed. And I, I did not because I was like, I know what's in there. But my friend went up to the fridge and <laughs> opened it, and there were, well, I don't know what they were now, but they used to be chicken breasts that were left in the freezer portion of the little mini fridge for a summer in Phoenix. I don't know how we didn't all just throw up. There, there were things crawling over the chicken. It was repulsive. And you better believe we fled. <laughs> We did not stick around. We didn't think, oh, that chicken is kind of redeemable. No. (laughs) It was done. We were not going to mess with that chicken anymore. That is is the kind of um, response, the punch-in-the-gut response that Paul had when he witnessed the righteousness of Jesus. Um, And he received Jesus' offer. And we, we know this story. It took Paul from a position of honor to humiliation from a position of power to helplessness and dependence, from despising Jesus and his church to loving Jesus and his church. His confidence was in knowing Christ personally, fully, intimately. His confidence was being united to Christ. He was one with Christ. 
He realized that all of his own efforts to earn God's love were not only standing in the way, but they were actively distancing and harming his ability to have a relationship with God. I don't know if there's many campers in here, but this is similar to how you're supposed to use a good down sleeping bag. When it's really cold and you're camping, a good sleeping bag is really important. But many people don't know how to use their sleeping bag. Because it's cold, they put on a lot of layers, right? So they'll have like a base layer and then like maybe a jacket and then a hoodie um, and then like they'll zip up like a windbreaker or something to stay warm. And they'll think, okay, now I'll just get into my sleeping bag. But they're still cold. And that's because the nature of a down sleeping bag is that it needs to be right next to your skin because that's where the warmth is. And all of those other layers of clothing that you have, they're not good at insulating the heat like down is. And so what's happening is the heat of your body is being radiated through all those layers, through cotton, things that are just useless at at keeping and retaining heat. And by the time it reaches the down, there's not much to keep you warm. And so you get progressively colder as you go through the night. That is what it's like to imagine that you can come to Christ wearing your own works. Because we are made to come to him completely naked, with nothing on. Because only he can cover us in the way that we need to be loved by God. And today, I imagine, because I have been in both of these places, um, there's really two types of people here. Um, and so this is, this is getting real right now. There are people here right now in this room who are too good to be in Christ. Your intelligence, your morality, your worldview, your politics, your bank account, your philanthropy, all of those things are sustaining you just enough to keep you from complete and utter dependence on Christ. You don't need him. That's what you think. So the only way for you to come to Christ is just how Paul did. Because that's exactly what was happening with Paul. (laughs) He was too good. But then when he saw Jesus, when he was confronted with the righteousness of the creator of the universe, came down as man, crucified, resurrected, ascended, upholding all of the globe, all of the galaxies with the power of his hand, he realized he wasn't good enough. And he received the call of Jesus on his life. And so that is how it happens. Is you hear in your, deep in your soul, in your gut, you feel God calling you. And you respond. And you say, yes, Lord, I need you. 
please have mercy on me. You come naked to Christ because that's the only way to know him. The second person in here is likely the person who knows Christ truly, who's been walking with Jesus for a long time. But something's happened over the years. You may have felt yourself drifting, felt yourself growing a little bit cold and distant. You're not alive and excited by God's word. The gospel kind of seems like something that was nice to hear initially, but now you want something else, something with a little more substance to it. I think that a lot of us in this church, our confidence starts to stray from being in Christ and it goes to being in our faith. I think we put we start to put confidence in our faith the way that we're meant to have confidence in Christ. Here's what I mean by that, because I think that's really just like kind of um, disillusioning, or not disillusioning, but just kind of, it, it'll disorient you a little bit. But if your confidence is in your faith, then you are trusting your own ability to choose God rather than trusting God. So you've just done kind of an unthinkable thing. You've taken faith, which is trust, dependence, complete helplessness before the Lord, and you've turned it into a work. And here's what will happen. When, when you start to analyze your faith, because you're really impressed by it, so you're thinking about it all the time, you, you're going to get disheartened, and you're going to start to wonder, is my faith enough? Am I really a Christian? Do I really believe God in the way I'm supposed to? And it leads to deconstruction. You will analyze your faith until there's nothing left to analyze. Here's what you need to hear. The only way that you can come to Jesus is naked. Your faith cannot stand between you and him. It's not something you did to make God love you. It's not a choice you made that connects you to the love of God. That's not what it is. The type of faith that Paul is talking about is complete and utter dependence. It's saying, I can't. But Jesus, you are awesome. You're merciful. You're gracious. I trust this. And I throw myself into your arms. So that, that is what union to Christ looks like. Now, in the rest of this passage, verses 9 through 11, we get three different facets of what it means to be united to Christ. And this is the complete gospel. This is the plan of our salvation. And so we're not going to go into this in much detail, but I just want to introduce you to it because it's really important for us to have these kind of different perspectives about where we're at. And the first one, it's part, it's all part of one thing, salvation. All these next three things, they're, they're not separate things. They're not like you do one and then you do the other and then the other happens. That's kind of what it sounds like, but it's all one thing. You can't have one of these and not get the rest. So the first one is justification. 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Justification is God's declaration to a sinner that they are righteous. This is the most offensive thing that's in here. God is perfect and good and true. He would not lie. And he calls a group of sinners righteous. That's wild. And we we do not respond very well to this because we have somewhere deep inside of us, we want to earn everything we get. And so we think of this as a job interview. We think of our relation to God as something that we're doing to climb the ladder so that, yes, God, I am with you. Look at what I did. Justification by faith is saying, there you are with God. Deal with it. It comes only by grace. And it's Jesus' faithfulness that gives it to you, not yours. Now, we have a lot of people who are very, um, fairness is very important too. And so this is going to play havoc with you because this is not fair. It's not fair that we get what Jesus earned. That's not fair. That's so much more than fair. It's so much beyond our ability to comprehend because Jesus earned everything. He's an heir of the universe and he gives that to us. So that's justification. Now sanctification, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection in this life, in this fallen world, and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So when we are living life in this fallen world, as we're united to Jesus, Jesus is going to do two things through that. And it's through his spirit that enables all of this. It's his work in us. And the first is that we are going to experience the power of the resurrection. So what does the power of the resurrection mean? Well, it can mean a lot of things. But here's basically what it means in its very simple form. The old is dead. The new is alive. Your old life is dead. It's gone. The new life, the life of the spirit, the life of grace, it's alive. Walk in it. And we are called to join in that work by putting to death our old desires, our old desires to please God apart from Christ, our old desires to do what we want regardless of what God says. The old is dead, the new is alive. The resurrection of Christ is power. The second thing is that we share in his sufferings. So because this world has fallen and it rejected our Savior, we will be rejected. When we offer the gospel to our friends, to our family, some will reject it. And they will reject us as we do that. And this is the life that Jesus lived when he was on earth. It's the life that Paul lived. It's the life that Timothy lived. It's the life that we live. We share in the sufferings of Christ. And we rejoice in them. 
Why, why would we rejoice in the sufferings of Christ? Because we are united to him. And he is making us like him through those sufferings. And then finally, we get verse 11, glorification, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, the... I think the natural way to understand this is like Paul's not sure if he will raise from the dead, but that's not kind of the force of this. He is very sure that he's going to raise from the dead. He's very assured that he is in Christ and that Christ will resurrect him. What he's not sure about is how that's going to happen. So he's like, however it happens, I will be raised from the dead. And when we are raised from the dead... It's an end and a beginning. So when we die, this life comes to an end. Living under the sun, living under evil, living um, a life of suffering, not knowing Christ fully as we want to, still experiencing alienation from other people, from ourselves, from God in different degrees, that ends. And what begins is the end of all that. It's the end of suffering, pain, persecution, struggle with sin, alienation. And it's the beginning of unity, harmony, and wholeness with God and with all of creation. That's what it means to be united in Christ. We get all of that. That is a promise from God who has never lied to you. Man, I want that to hit us. I want that to sink in and just guide everything that we do. And so in the end, we, we learn that God's not looking to give us a salary. He's not looking to hire us on his team to do his work. No, he wants to adopt us. He wants to bring us into his family And so it's not what we give God. It's what God gives us. And it's an eternal, imperishable inheritance, not a salary. And so how do we live as a result of this? Well, Galatians 2.20 is a wonderful summary of how we should live and how we should respond. And I'm just going to read it for us, and it should be up on the screen. I just want to take a little bit of time. I'll close in prayer after this to pray over this. This is Paul writing, and he's reflecting on the gospel. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. All of that work that I was trying to do to earn God's love, it's dead. It's dead, just as dead as Christ was. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus was everything to Paul. And the life I now live in the flesh, because I'm still here, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and then gave himself for me. God loved you and then sent his Son. His love extends into eternity for you. And so if you are here this morning and you feel that, and you hear God's voice in it, you need to respond. 
today. You don't need to wait. This isn't a process. You need to respond. And you respond by talking to somebody about it, to telling someone. You can come talk to me. You can talk to Sam. You can talk to any of the leaders or people that you know who brought you to this church. But you need to respond because it is God calling you and offering you everything for nothing. Please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to believe that all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our self-righteousness, all of our attempts to see ourselves apart from you, help us believe, God, that they are nailed to the cross and did not come out of the grave. God, help us to live in freedom from those things. Help us to see Christ and knowing Christ and being united to him as so much more valuable than anything that we would come to you with nothing, that we would come to you naked and that you would give us your robe, that you would give us your righteousness, that we might be brought into your family. God, and help us for the rest of this day. Help us worship you because of this. This is wonderful news. There is nothing left to be done except for to just sing and rejoice in all that you've done for us. And so God, give us your spirit to do that. Help us as your family to love you and to respond with new hearts, hearts that are sensitive to you. God, and I pray for anyone here um, who doesn't know this joy, that you would work in their hearts, Lord, that you would work in their lives, that you would speak to them and that you would draw them into you and that they would know what it means to be united to Christ. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.